Um, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we give thanks for your word, Lord. The scripture says you exhort your word even above your name. And Lord, we pray um, for the gift of illumination, Lord. We thank you for revealing truth to us. Lord, we ask we don't just be provoked, Lord. We don't just want to be informed, but transform us into the image of Christ himself. We bless you, we honour you. And all God's people say, Amen. If you have your Bibles, can we turn to Mark chapter 5? And we'll be looking at um, verse 1 to verse 20 today. And the title of my message this morning is called Disruptions. And today we come not only to the longest, most vivid and detailed account in the entire Gospel of Mark, but also the longest and most detailed account in the entire Bible about the casting out of demons. I can see a lot of excited faces here when I say that. It's one of the most gripping accounts in all of Scripture. Nothing like this display of power over demons is recorded in Scripture since God himself overthrew Lucifer and all his rebelling angels out of heaven. And let me just set a bit of context for you about this story. And our passage today picks up right after Jesus has calmed the storm in chapter 4. That means the previous chapter. And we can read that Jesus and his disciples are in a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee and a great storm arises. And the scripture says that the disciples were afraid. And while they are afraid, what was our Lord doing? He was at rest. He was taking a nap. And they had to wake up Jesus and inform him of their situation. And they had the audacity to ask, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? And then Jesus stands up with authority, spoke to the storm. And just like in Genesis chapter 1, uh, in the order of creation, the wind obeys the voice of God and the sea is calm. There's a stillness and there's a great hush. And the text said that after this, the disciples were afraid. So they went from being afraid of the storm to being afraid of Jesus to the point where they had to ask themselves this question, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. And now we go to our main text, which is chapter 5, verse 1, and we will read. And then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. On the far side of the Sea of Galilee, there are very steep hills coming right down to the sea, maybe about seven to about 800 feet high. And on top is a plain. And on that plain are 10 cities called the Decapolis. And they are Greek cities, not Jewish cities. And they are a little remnant of the conquest of Alexander the Great. And living in those cities are people who follow a Greek way of life. But between the cities on the plain and the Sea of Galilee, it is limestone hillside pitted with caves used only for one purpose, as a burial ground. And this is where Jesus arrived on scene. And the text shows that the man who approached Jesus was not just troubled. He was not just disturbed in the mind, but he was possessed. All the symptoms were there. There's supernatural strength. There's also a supernatural knowledge, a clairvoyance, if you can say, a spiritual knowledge about who Christ really is. And Mark says that this man came running to Jesus. And when he saw Jesus step out of the boat, fascinating, right? And right in the middle, right in the middle, and say he worshipped Jesus. Perhaps in the night before, in his little home, he was also experiencing the same great storm that Jesus and the disciples faced. 
And then all of a sudden, the storm stopped and there was a great calm. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm just thinking, that's, that's thinking in my mind, that perhaps the demons in him knew who was coming. I can't help but wonder if maybe perhaps this man who was in deep bondage and seeing the sudden supernatural calming of the storm, perhaps for the first time he had hope. Even with all the demons plaguing him, there was a spark of hope as he wonders about the man who would be coming. And verse 3 says that this man lived among the tombs. And first, I'm going to say that my book of Numbers, Levitical flags are being raised right now because one word comes to mind. The word is unclean, okay? Because corpses in the Old Testament were unclean and you will be deemed unclean just by one touch. So the fact that Mark says that this man lived among the tombs is the author's way of saying that this man is forever perpetually unclean. He was always on the outside a complete outcast. And not only do demons live in him, but death surrounds him and he is rejected by the entire community. And how many times do you think that people have tried to restrain him from hurting himself and being a danger to others? But verse 4 reveals that now they have stopped. No one could bind him with any chain because he would wrench the chains apart, so they stopped trying. I'm reminded about a few years ago, I led a team to India for a mission trip. I was supposed to do a church camp. And at the time, I, I was still quite new to ministry. I was not yet a pastor. Um, and uh, when we heard that we were guest speakers of a church camp, I kept thinking, wow, we are like the, the um, Nikki Raibody. <laughs> we are the special speaker. And then we went there. They had posters like seven, eight feet. And wow, it was tremendous. I was so excited. And in one of the sessions, one of my team members was preaching. He preached a very good word, but while he was preaching, there was a uh, there was a commotion in the front row, and I turned because we always we are always seated in the front. When you are either in Africa or India, when you're speaking, right, you you sit facing the audience, and uh, a bit awkward, lah. But I could hear this commotion, and I turned my 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 head and saw this young boy. He was screaming and it was like rolling on the floor, and um, but something in me felt it was non-kosher, something in me felt that it was, uh, it was plagued by spirits, okay. At the end of the service, um, um, because it was a church camp, there were pastors from different churches over there, um, the local churches. So they came and they were like rebuking the spirit very loudly. They were scolding, shouting, screaming, and I felt very uncomfortable. And now I'm, I'm very new in this, uh, in this entire ministry, okay. Usually in those days when there's any like, demons or spirits, I'll call Auntie Mabel and Uncle Francis. I say, oh, I'll call Pastor Dion. I'm like, oh, don't involve me that much. I'm still quite new in this. But something in me knew that, oh, this is not right. You can't speak to the boy like this. I know you want to cast out the demon, but you can't speak to the boy like this. So I asked respectfully, can I just minister to the boy? Me and my team, we brought the, the, the small boy aside. And he was about five to six years old, or seven years old, okay? And um, if you really don't believe in the manifestation of demons, let me tell you, it's very true. He was a young boy, but he had the strength of like three to four men. He pinned us, our hands down. We could not really uh, grab him. And but I, I just whispered to him gently, love him. And the Lord began to reveal a few things in his life. I began to cast him out slowly, slowly. But I felt a, like just a, I was hindered, okay? I could, I could feel he could not receive the full restoration. And God dropped me a word of knowledge. And I asked the parents this. I say, when he was a young chap, much younger, did, did you dedicate him to your house idols? And uh, the parents who are Christians, supposedly, look at me and they look very guilty. They say, yes, but it's not our idols. It's my parents' idols because we are living with our parents. And, uh, and, and I say, the breakthrough is almost coming. Just go home, 
destroy the idols, and, and he will be set free. They said, we can't do that. We can't do that because it's not our idols. It's our parents' idols. And, and, and they just left like this. And I could not sleep the entire night because, you know, like almost there, almost there. And the boy could not speak because he was uh, mute for years due to this uh, affliction. And I was so grieved. I could not sleep at night. And I was just praying. And um, I, I think I would just, it was one of the most vivid memories I have on, on this ministry uh, to people who are afflicted with demons, all right? Um, let's go back to, to the portion of Scripture. And in verse 5, it says, day and night, he was howling and screaming. Imagine day and night in town when you're trying to have your meals or trying to unwind, you keep hearing screams, all right? And maybe he was cursing, maybe he was blaspheming the name of God, maybe he was just shouting nonsense. But I can't help but wonder, were there times that the man in the caves, he was crying out for help? And I think it's also fascinating that we are told so much about this man except his name. And our story continues in verse 6. He says that he runs to Jesus, falls down on his knees in front of him, which is the posture of worship. And then he, sh- he says that he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, please do not torture me. And this is a mark of somebody who actually sees the real Jesus. This is the first step of healing. If you see the real Jesus, you're drawn to him and you submit. The man approached Jesus and he said something. The word adjure here means he was coming to a higher power. He knew that this Jesus had both power and authority. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And the word Legion is a Roman word that means something like 6,000 troops. It's a military term. In the days of Julius Caesar, it was about 3,500. But by the end of the Roman Empire, it it increased to about 8,000. But we know, we know it's in the thousands, right? Yet when this man possessed by a legion of demons gets into the presence of God because in the presence of Jesus, there's no struggle. He's down on his knees and he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And that's how we know they were in Gentile land because no way you can find herds of pigs in Jewish land, all right? Um, And they begged him saying, please send us to the pigs. So Jesus gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down to the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. This is interesting because in chapter 4, just before this story, Jesus showed his lordship over the storm, over creation. And now here in this portion of scripture, he's showing his lordship over demons. And in the story after this, if you can go home and read, you will read on, you can see that Jesus shows his lordship over death. So even if you are reading these stories for the first time, there's clear evidence from Scripture that Jesus had total authority in the spiritual realm. It can't be that he's just a good teacher, right? There's something unique about this man. And this man comes and cries out and reveals Jesus' identity. Jesus, son of the most high God, which is so incredibly ironic because the disciples, a few verses earlier in chapter 4, they quite literally turn to themselves after years of following Jesus, after years of like sleeping with Jesus, eating with Jesus, seeing the signs and wonders, hearing the stories, seeing all the miracles, and they go, who is this man? But this broken and desperate man knows who Jesus is. Sometimes the most unexpected among us gets who Jesus is. Finally, Jesus comes to an arrangement with the demons, and they ask him to send them into the pigs. So 2,000 pigs drown. It's costly, right? I agree. Even when Jesus is trying to say that even with all the wealth in the world, it's not worth one human soul. But the story doesn't end here. The temptation when reading this story is to show the ending credits when the pigs are drowned. And we say, good story, 
the end. It's similar when we read the, the, the prodigal story, the prodigal son, and after the prodigal comes home and we give a round of applause and say, okay, that's all, and the credit comes out. But before that, there's an older brother in the story, and the father is entreating the older brother to come into the house. So Jesus wants to redeem both brothers, not just the prodigal son, but the prodigal sons. So what I'm telling you this is, don't let the pigs distract you from the people. What do I mean? I've said this before, but in the Gospels, every time when Jesus performs a miracle or, or engages in discourse or preach a message, it's not just to reveal how powerful or wise he is. It serves three purposes. First, to reveal the nature of the Father. Second, to dismantle false worldviews. And three, to transform hearts. So pay attention when Jesus performs some miracle. Pay attention not only to the miracle itself, but how the people respond to him. Because so often that's where the heart of the text is. That's where the message of the text is. Not only in what Jesus is doing, but how people received him. So we're not going to let ourselves get distracted by demons in pigs, all right? And we're going to look at the response of the townspeople in verse 14. Because it says, The herdsmen fled and told in the city and in the country. And people came to see what, it, what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. Interesting. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting to the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, that he might follow Jesus. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Maybe it's just me, but I can't help but wonder, wasn't there at least one person in the entire area who was glad that Jesus just healed the town of demoniac? Wasn't there just one person? After Jesus steps in, you would think that they would be rejoicing, right? But the text says that they were all afraid. They were afraid to the point where they begged Jesus to leave. The back here is an interesting word. It's, it's the same when the demons back to be thrown into the pigs. They became frightened. Strange, okay? Because they used to be frightened. They wouldn't come near this guy because he was, they, were, he, they were afraid of him. He was so violent that he scared them all. Now he's clothed and not naked. The transformation is visible to all. He's seated and not wandering aimlessly. He's harmless, not dangerous. He's quiet, not screaming. He's among the living, not among the dead. He's peaceful, not tormented, and now they are frightened. What were they afraid of? And I don't think the people in this town ever thought that this man would be set free. They had given up on him and tolerated him. They had made room for this man and his demons in their lives so much that he was an allowed nuisance in the daily harm of their lives. And right now, Jesus appeared and everything changed, and they are afraid. They are afraid of Jesus disrupting their lives disrupting their normal day-to-day. -day. I mean, objectively speaking, right? Okay, sure, for the pig herders and the pig farmers, it, it really stings for them because this is your livelihood to hurt pigs. And just like that, Jesus shows up and your hurt goes and drowns itself. And the people in the town sees this and they think, oh my gosh, he just affected the source of income. If he touched one guy and 2,000 pigs were drowned, can you imagine what would happen if he steps into town? What will happen if he steps into our homes? What else is he going to change? What else is he going to unearth? We already paid the price for our pigs. We need this guy to leave. Because Jesus shows up trying to communicate truth about himself. 
truth about who he was, truth about his authority over the spiritual realm, and they couldn't handle it. Because this is something very new. You know, in the Old Testament, we see food multiplying. We have um, sick people being healed. You even have the dead being raised. Same as in the New Testament, but we do not hear of much account of demons being cast out. And now this happens. Something new is breaking in when Jesus ushers in the new covenant. And one of the questions I have this morning is, are you afraid of Jesus disrupting your life? It's a, it's a weird question. Do you sense him prompting you to do something different? Perhaps to confess something or to surrender something? Maybe to have that really difficult conversation with that family member or that relative whom you find hard to forgive. Do you ever sense Jesus trying to bring his holy disruption to the ordinary harm of your life? And the issue with the townspeople was this. They came to this state of apathy. Why do I say that? They were willing to live with the demoniac because he became part of their lifestyle. Yes, it troubled them at first. Yes, they tried to restrain him. But we read just now that this man was screaming day and night. Perhaps they were disturbed by this before, but now it becomes normal. They can now sleep through the night and tune his screams out. They have accepted it. And it's the same with our spiritual life. And I think there's a real warning here, and the warning is this. To be content with apathy and to, and to be content with sin in our lives is like a daily injection of poison into our spiritual vibrancy. And we will begin to lose life. Because spiritual ap apathy is a feeling of indifference or even coldness to the things of God. And we have been talking about revival for the past, I nearly say past few weeks, but no, it's for the past few months. And let me tell you this, that revival will not come to cold hearts. Because apathy means I don't care. It's not the same as ignorance. Ignorance means I don't know. Or laziness means I don't feel like doing anything. And I really think that uh, the COVID chaos is partially responsible for inducing spiritual apathy among many of us. A Christian who might be so on fire one year ago might today feel totally numb towards Christ and his mission in the world. He's not an ignorant Christian. He knows what to do. He knows that God exists. He knows that he's worthy of lordship, worthy of surrender. He knows that he needs to pray. He knows that he should read scripture and to serve. But in spite of his knowledge, so level numbness prevails. And the rapid changes of recent months have dried up his concern for the things that matters most. He just finds himself not caring anymore because spiritual apathy is deadly for our soul. You know, speaking through the prophet Hosea, God rebuked the Israelites for spiritual apathy. He said, but when they had grace, they became full. They were filled and their hearts were lifted up. Therefore, they forget me. How could they forget the one who delivered them from Egypt and fed them in the wilderness? It seems that spiritual apathy can creep in unnoticed even when God is working in powerful ways. And Elizabeth George said this, apathy is a spiritual numbness that creeps in and corrupts the good that God intends for our life and the good that he wants to accomplish for him and his kingdom. And one more thing about apathy that we can see here is they were, the townspeople were so triggered and worked up when Jesus came and brought a change, not realizing that it's the mercies and the grace of God that Christ appeared and intervened. And sometimes we are spiritually apathetic because we are tolerating a certain scene and that scene numbs us to the things of God. And look at the people in the town. They were willing to live with the demon-possessed man rather than Jesus working a miracle. And sometimes we are willing to live with our bondage and our, and our brokenness and our sin and refuse to let Jesus restore because we think that he will bring chaos into our lives when in fact he's bringing order 
to our chaotic lives. And our text, yes, has demons and pigs today, but I think it's so much more than that. I think this is a text on how we respond to Jesus, and it's as if this story ends putting before us with two paths. The first path is the, the demoniac who followed Jesus, and after he embraced, embraced Jesus' forming of his life, he was willing to follow Jesus wherever he goes. Or the second path, the path of the townspeople who saw Jesus, felt his work, felt him disrupting their order, and begged him to leave. And I don't know about you, but from the gospel, I can see very clearly that Jesus will never force himself to stay in a place where he's not welcome. And we have been praying for revival. We've been praying for God to move. And when he comes, he's going to set things in order. He might disrupt a status quo. He might interrupt things. He might bring things to the light. The question is, which path will we take? Will we choose apathy and ask him to leave? Some of you, God has been putting his finger on your heart. Perhaps you, force, you fester deep unforgiveness and, uh, and, and you've given it a room in your heart and it has found a home and you have made peace with it. And Jesus right now is disrupting that false peace, that false tranquility. You know, many years after the resurrection of Christ, uh, when the churches in the New Testament were established, Jesus spoke to the apostle John about the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. And it says, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither hot nor cold, would that you will either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and I self to annoy your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. If you read Revelations 2 and 3 in the first six letters to the churches, Jesus was always affirming some things and rebuking some things. So on one hand, he's saying that these are things that are doing very well in the church. On the other hand, he's saying that these are the not so good things. You need to change, you need to repent and get right with me. But this is the first of the letters in which nothing's good being said. There's nothing affirmed. At no point that Jesus say you are doing well. Every single thing that Jesus says about this church is negative. The question is, is there any hope for this church? The answer is yes. However, the church is so sick that Jesus actually put sort of a doctor's head, metaphorically speaking, right? Because notice in the middle of the text, he says, you have to get from me, I self. And that's interesting because the city of Laodicea was a medical center and there were many doctors and a very famous medical school was there and they produced a lot of medicines and one of the most famous ones was the medicines for eye problems. So what Jesus essentially doing here is saying, you are sick, but I have the medicine for you. And when he refers to apathy and lukewarmness, do you know what he's saying? Look at the, the, the words that he said. He said, you nauseate me. You nauseate me. I'm about to vomit because of what, of what I see in you. He's saying in some ways it's more spiritually dangerous to be lukewarm than to be cold. And there are three kinds of people. First, there are the people who are sold out for Christ. They do whatever it, thinks, uh, whatever it takes to just approach the presence of God. Then there are people who utterly reject and are hostile towards Christ. 
And then there are people who are just sort of religious and they come to church, but there's no evidence of life in them at all. And the hot and cold both have come to grips with the identity and the claims of Christ. The hostile person says, I see what Christianity claims. It claims that Jesus became flesh and has to be preeminent. And if that's true, it changes everything. But I don't accept this. And the cold person is honest, outrightly dismissing the claims. But Jesus says to the person who has apathy, who is lukewarm, and he says, I can't live with a person like you. You are in a more spiritually dangerous position than a cold person. At least the cold person knows that he's cold. For those who are lukewarm, there's no intimacy and passion and wonder in their faith, in their walk with God. And they're always afraid whenever Jesus turns up, shows up, and turns on turns on the heat. And if you're hot, God has a message for you. If you're cold, he has a message for you. But if you're lukewarm, he will spew you out from his mouth. But God in his goodness and mercy gave a way out. But look at the way that Jesus ends the rebuke. He says in Revelation 3 verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. For so long we have preached the one word solution to the problem of lukewarmness and we always say it's repentance. But that's only half truth. And I don't know how we have missed the other word because it says be zealous. The Lord said be zealous and repent. Be zealous in your repentance. Be zealous about the repentance. And I've discovered that just saying sorry for your sins is not enough unless the Lord shows the state of your heart and unless you have a true encounter with Him, you will not see it. Be zealous and allow him to have free reign in your heart. Amen? Some of the greatest promises in the Bible were given to those who displayed the greatest zeal. G.K. Chesterton said, there's no such thing on earth as an uninteresting subject. The only thing that can exist is an uninterested person. The question today is, would you rather keep your pigs and ask him to leave you alone? Or would you allow him free reign to disrupt the current disorder in your current life? Yes, it might cost you, it will rock your world, but I promise you, it will lead to freedom and it will lead to glory. Amen? We think he's disordering our lives, but he's bringing order to chaos. Six months ago, I, I preached on Mark chapter 5 too, but it's the story after this. I shared on how Jesus restored Jairus' daughter and how the woman with the issue of blood was healed. And the theme was on interruption, on how Jesus was interrupted. And today's message is also about disruption but it's about letting the Lord himself disrupt our lives for his glory. And Jesus gives us the key, be zealous and repent. But I want to, end, I want to close by bringing our attention to Mark chapter 7. I really want you to see this because it brought me such joy. In verse 31, do you know what it reveals? It reveals that even though in chapter 5, when they chased Jesus out of their land, but in chapter 7, it reveals that he went back to the Decapolis. He gave them a second chance. And here this, they accepted him. They brought a man who was deaf and dumb to him. And Jesus healed the man. And Jesus told them, keep it quiet. Keep it silent. Don't tell people. But scripture says they were more zealous to spread the word about who he is and what he has done. They rejected him initially, but I'm glad that Jesus gave them a second chance. Amen. And even right now, Jesus is giving all of us a second chance. You know, in Revelation chapter 3, he said to the church in Laodicea, after rebuking them, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens his door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And I think last week, uh, I read last week in the pastor's blog, Pastor Tim Chong wrote this. He said, The Bible has many examples of course correction. I love the familiar story of Jonah. 
the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time in Jonah chapter, 13, in Jonah chapter 3. And how many times does the Lord's word come to you before you hear and you obey? It's good that God understands our nature as he often sends the same word multiple times. Does it happen to you like it does to me? But God understands that cause corrections are hard. It's hard to start a new career. It's hard to start a good habit. Starting over and anew are the hardest part. But God has his way of giving us a little help. For Jonah, God sent a storm and a fish to correct his path. But once we get his message and we receive correction, he carries us. And Jesus, once again, today, is calling out to some of you. Perhaps he began to um, disrupt and poke his finger on certain stuff. But right now, he's knocking again. And the question is, what is our response? And I also think that the ministry of the man with demons was fruitful because Christ said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on your life. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. He was sidelined due to his past. People rejected him, but he was placed on the front lines by Jesus. And the fruit was seen in chapter 7. And this, by the way, is the first preacher that Jesus ever sent out. Jesus haven't even sent out the 70 yet. This is the first person Jesus ever sent out to preach his name. And he is a Gentile who had a really messed up past. But because of his zeal, the people became zealous because of the testimony which they had heard from the man. And his life was the ultimate testimony. He was a living epistle, led and read by all, by all. And last week when I was praying, the Holy Spirit reminded me of this phrase, do not grieve and do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do you know how we grieve the Holy Spirit? We grieve Him by continuing allow uh, intentional sin to remain in our lives. And we grieve the, and we quench the Holy Spirit when we refuse to allow His Spirit to move due to apathy and indifference. We put a cap on Him. We say enough. We say leave. We say don't disrupt our current life. And God will not adjust His agenda to fit our schedule. We adjust to fit His, amen? We adjust our lives to fit His. Do you know what's the difference between the early church and, and us right now? Um, I just want to share your story. In Acts chapter 19, it's about the birth of the church on Ephesus. We can read this in the entire chapter. And I think the church was new, okay, but it's one of the most glorious church shown in the New Testament. Okay, they were young. They were still discovering things out. I think they were still like trying to figure out the apostles' doctrine. Uh, but in verse 19, it says that on one day, they were running about and burning their magic books. Can you just imagine with me, okay? Perhaps you're walking, you're a bystander, and one Sunday you see people running about. Then you see uh, there's a bonfire, there, and people running about, smoke everywhere, carrying their books, magic books, which is so ingrained in their culture and their past. He said, hey, where are you going? He said, I don't know what's happening, but perhaps. But I'm, I went to service and um, Apostle Paul was preaching about, about mixture. And I know in my heart that this does not glorify God. And I'm going to burn it. And the scripture says that the magic book costs 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000. Can you imagine the scene from the helicopter? You see people running about, smoke everywhere, People like burning things. It looked messy, all right? This is confirmed not seeker-friendly church. But God looked down at them, saw the mess, and he smiled, and he blessed them. They were messy, but they were in love. They did whatever it takes to obey the Lord, even if it cost them 50,000 pieces of silver. 
they knew that there was mixture in their lives, even though it's so ingrained in their culture, in their custom, in their livelihood. People were selling uh, idols and magical wares in, in that town, all right? It's a big thing. But they say, even though it costs me, I will do whatever it takes because I want to be right with the Lord. And that's the early church. And that's the early church. And some of you, perhaps you're living in bondage, and this message is like a drink of water to you. Let me tell you that there is hope, and you can be restored. The other group, perhaps you're thinking, I'm not living in blatant sin, but you know there's no vibrancy and life in your Christian walk. You're day in and day out doing the same thing. And one of the things you're most afraid of is Jesus walking in and disrupting the self-made comfort that you have established in your mind. Many years ago, I saw um, one of my friends from church just walking at the back, up and down, while the preacher was preaching. And the preacher was preaching on missions, right? Then I, I asked, are you okay? He said, oh, I'm okay, I'm okay. And he's a very good guy, okay? Serve, very gifted. Just, I just love, I just like him so much. And, uh, and the next week, I had coffee with him. I said, dude, tell me lah, why I see you walking up and down. He said, I just need to confess to you that um, every time when there's a message about missions, something happens in my heart, like a, like a tugging, and I cannot handle it because I, don't, I cannot leave my job right now, and I just want to drown out the voice, and then I, I, I just stand at the back. <laughs> I, I, I hope that it will not just speak to me again, and he keep walking up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, but... But let me tell you this, that some of you, perhaps God is speaking to you to go to Bible school. Perhaps. A few years ago, I, my life was, I think I was doing well in TNE. I was doing well in my work. Everything was okay. Uh, but there's, I think the Lord sensed, not the Lord sensed off, but quite funny. But passing sense that something was happening in my heart, that I, I was like hitting a cap. And then um, he dropped me a note on an email and said, why don't you go to the Bible College of Wales? And I was like, wow, it's like six, seven months before my wedding. So I, being a very good Christian, I, I know what to say. So I, I dropped him an email. I said, Pastor Young, I tell you this, when I get married with my wife, me and my wife, we will go. But uh, Pastor Young, you know, he doesn't write long emails. Uh, but I can't really remember the language he wrote. But it, it's almost like saying, you don't lie to yourself. <laughs> That will never happen. But he said, now's the time. I feel that now's the time that you should go. And I'm so grateful for a wonderful fiancé. She said, ah, just go lah. So I went and God healed my heart. I had a lot of self-preservation, a lot of anger. And in the three months when I just stepped aside to just approach the Lord, something happened in my heart. God brought a healing in my heart. Yes, my schedule was disrupted, but something happened. I want to end off with um, the story, okay? I know I mentioned to you about the Indian boy that was so... And I, I, I ended, like, abruptly, right? And you said, oh, this guy go to the next passage. But, um, so I, I could not sleep the night. Oh, I could not sleep, could not sleep. But the next morning, um, our local pastor got a phone call. And he said, um, and it's from the man, it was from the father of the boy. And they said that um, after they went home, they were so convicted that they threw away the idols. And the next morning, the boy talked. And I don't know what happened. I mean, they perhaps were, I don't know, I, I, I'm like, wow, how is, going to go, how is he going to explain to his parents? But I'm like, wow, God, give them grace. But he did whatever it takes because the, very, the life of his son was more precious. It cost him something. It would disrupt everything. But he knew what it means when the Word of God speaks to his heart. He was willing to do that. And the family is serving the Lord. Let's just stand to our feet. It's a simple message today. But I just want to speak to some of you. 
that perhaps for weeks, for months, the Lord has been asking you to do certain things that make you uncomfortable. And you think that you can drown out the voice. You know what's the beautiful thing? That in chapter 7, he came back. He came back to the city of Decapolis and they welcomed him. And God right now is giving you a second chance. He's putting his finger on certain things. And I just want you to lift up your hands. Lord, we come before you. You are not just sovereign, but you are altogether good. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. We will never graduate from the school of repentance, Lord. Lord, we come before you, we bear our hearts. Lord, we don't just want to listen to the word, but we want to shamar, Lord. We want to obey. And Lord, I pray that even as you reveal things to our lives, you, you unearth things, Lord, even as you direct the course of our lives, Lord, we know, we know, we know that our Christ does all things well. And Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you set alignment right now in the name of Jesus. You set alignment right now in the name of Jesus, Lord. And you bring restoration into broken lives. And Lord, I bless those who are standing here. The blessings of God the Father, the strength and grace of Christ the Son, and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit shall be with you now and forevermore. And all God's people say, Amen. Let's give God a praise offering. Amen. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.